Welcome again to the Mladirini podcast, a platform where your voices uh, can be heard. I am Ardita Veseli, a researcher at the European Policy Institute in Skopje, and in the following minutes we will discuss with Gabriela Giacomela, a journalist and writer with a very prolific career. She is also a co-founder of the uh, Fact Checkers, one of the first associations to focus on educational fact-checking in Italy. Without further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Gabriela. Welcome, Gabriela, to our um, Ladirini podcast, and thank you for being us with us today and for um, accepting our invitation. Thank you very much, and I'm really glad to be here. So I suppose I should introduce myself very briefly. Yes, please, uh, in a 60-second um, elevator pitch, just introduce yourself to our, uh, to our platform. Okay, so hi everybody, I'm Gabriela Iacomella, I'm Italian by birth, and uh, I worked uh, uh, a little bit here and there in Africa, in Asia, training journalists. I'm a journalist by uh, career myself. And uh, since a few years, I've been focusing mostly on educational fact-checking, which is a strategy to involve especially young audiences, but not only youngsters, into new strategies to debunk and fact-check news and develop a critical approach to information. Um, thank you very much. Um, so as we know now, with also with the pandemic uh, and us being online all the time, the internet opened space uh, for very fast access to information. Uh, news are being shared in digital forms, whether it's with audio, video, even now with podcasts, as we are uh, recording this now. Uh, but how did journalist, uh, journalism changed um, in the recent um, year, but also in the recent decade? How has um, the digital formats uh, changed journalism? Well, uh, first thing, yeah, journalism has undergone a dramatically change a dramatical change and evolution over the last uh, i'd say couple of decades at least uh, but what we witnessed over the last year is an increase uh, in what we call information disorder so information partially unverified coming from all sorts of platforms all sorts of channels that sort of uh, clog our mind and you know uh, overload our ability to sort of uh, evaluate and check what we are uh, facing when we when we deal with news and this of course has become a problem for journalists as well um, I think it's not by accident that even before the uh, World Health Organization launched the alarm officially launched the alarm of the pandemic uh, they started the director himself uh, Tedros Adhanom uh, in February last year launched the alarm, uh, rang the bell on the so-called infodemic. So the urgency, the, the necessity, the need to tackle the way people were getting information regarding what was back then called an epidemic still uh, was clearly at the top ranking need for um, you know, health officials as well as government and institutions. Why? Because uh, as you know, uh, probably everybody is aware of, uh, over the last decades, journalism in its, uh, in its traditional form, in its official form, um, has um, suffered a massive loss of credibility and trust. This has been measured by multiple sources. Uh, there's been uh, you know, a huge research done, extensive research done, especially in the US, which is probably the first country that realized there was a bit of a problem going on. So we have on one side, official journalism losing grip 
on its readers and uh, free online, apparently unhinged uh, sources, uh, getting, you know, gaining, um, you know, trust and gaining traction with uh, viewers, readers, users, you know, name them how we want, but, you know, that's what we are talking. People are increasingly resorting to social media and uh, online platforms uh, to get their news. And this implies that, uh, you know, many of these platforms are not bound by, you know, legal provisions to be trustworthy, to, you know, go through, you know, a specific, uh, you know, uh, set of, uh, uh, of rules to, to provide information. So we do not have uh, this kind of binding regulation for, for many platforms. Did journalism change? Yes, it did, indeed. Uh, we, we've been exploring new formats. So that's, you know, let's talk first about the positive side of it. Uh, whatever journalists uh, uh, can, you know, turn to their own news, uh, it's, uh, it's provided a new, a new venue for readers to resort to. So you were talking about podcasts, you were talking about uh, digital forms of journalism and multimedia, um, you know, video, short video documentaries. Uh, there's been, you know, really a trove of new tools for journalists to put their hands on. Not all of these tools have proved effective. For example, I myself, uh, you know, tried my hands on, uh, mm, uh, you know, 3D narratives, uh, you know, sort of immersive narration of, uh, of stories this didn't really work out very well because people still lack the tools they don't have uh, it's very uh, engaging if you want but you lose the attention of the reader uh, uh, at the very beginning because you know we are very seduced by the you know how engaging the narration is uh, but you know you focus more on how something is told than about the contents so there are some new tools, some new, uh, you know, um, forms of digital journalism that really don't uh, impact very much in terms of outreach, in terms of how a voice can be heard. But then again, we can engage readers in different ways. We can use the social platforms to reach out to new potential readers. We have journalists using TikTok and Instagram to reach out to young users, which is actually a very positive thing to do. Uh, we can follow news on a 24 news cycle, which is something that before digital, uh, you know, transformation, we couldn't do. Uh, newspapers, uh, uh, news broadcasts on TV, they used to have a very specific time frame. So if a bit of news didn't arrive by that time during the day, it was easily dismissed or it would pop up the following day. So now everything is faster. Uh, there's much more uh, there's more venue, therefore you can publish, in terms of sheer quantity, you can publish and share more news. So this is a positive, it, it's an upside. And also there's a flexibility. You can target different age groups or social groups uh, uh, using different media. You can basically uh, take a news, take a content and develop it transversally over many platforms and each one of them will have the ability to reach out to different segments of your of your public. What's the downside though? The downside is that there is still a lack of a functioning business model, despite everything in 20 years plus, 25 years of uh, digital media, 
we are still at the stage where nobody really knows how to make a profit out of digital version of online newspapers or whatever. So we have a few positive examples like the New York Times or the Guardian, you might have heard that they actually managed to get a massive increase in subscriptions and uh, the online revenues have been skyrocketing over the last couple of years but they are more an exception than a rule. It's very difficult to apply the same business model of the New York Times to an Italian regional newspaper or to a Macedonian you know, national daily. Uh, same goes with The Guardian. It's even more complicated because The Guardian, as you know, has a trust behind it. And you know, there's a very different relationship between what the newspaper stands for and it's, uh, let's call them clients, but it's more like a, an engaged public. So. Lack of a functioning business models means cuts in funding, cuts in revenues, therefore cuts in funding, less journalists uh, engage in the making of a newspaper. So the time frame squeezes, you're required to perform multiple you know, tasks at the same time, the quality decreases, and you know, it's a vicious cycle. This decrease in trust towards the media also depends on how much we have lost in terms of quality with a, in, you know, with a emerging market of the digital media. And then we have, yes, of course, we have citizen journalism. You know, the digital era is defined by the arrival of this, you know, by the arrival on the scene of a public which is not a passive public anymore. It's an engaged public. It can, uh, you know, debate news, uh, create news, contribute to the creation of uh, information in general. So it's a two-way channel, it's not a one-way channel anymore. But this also raises questions in terms of accountability. Citizen journalism in its purest form is uh, made of citizens raising questions, raising themes, uh, producing materials. But this is a, an even you know, tougher burden on journalists because it means that you have to you know, go through scheme through all the, this vast trove of materials and you can't trust a straightforward, you know, whomever sends you content. You need to make a, you know, a fact check of each and every single bit of information that you receive. You have to check whether the person sending it has an agenda, for example, or has a biased view of the problem. Where does the bit of news come from? Is the video, has the video been recorded exactly in that place at that time? Or is it something that's been reused and so on and so forth. In terms of what we have access to online, uh, free news, as you know, many platforms uh, pretend to be providing news for free. Therefore creating a huge competition, almost unbeatable competition for traditional media. But free isn't always free as we all know. What we don't pay in money, we pay in data, you know, that are siphoned from us and resold and reused to many purposes. And also in quality loss. To have a platform that is uh, running for free without subscription, without payment on the side of the public means uh, that you cannot really build on uh, quality information. You have to rely on quantity, you know, and, you know, be the first one to beat you know, the breaking news cycle and be there first, uh, sometimes without having the chance to double check it or using, you know, gossip or clickbaiting content to get, you know, traction among the readers. 
And then, of course, this is related to the free news market. Uh, there is a pressure of a multifaceted competition that comes from online media. So as you see, there's a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And uh, I would say that in general, we haven't figured out how to use this new market and how to make uh, you know, an, advantage, an advantageous you know, use of uh, the new tools yet. Um, there's a new current emerging in journalism, which is slow journalism. Uh, it was born in the US. Some, you know, it was the first time people talked about slow journalism. It was basically in reaction to this 24-7 fast food cycle of news. Um, so slow journalism is basically uh, a branch of journalism, usually spearheaded by young reporters uh, with a very clear idea of uh, what the purpose, uh, the civic and civil purpose of journalism is. Huh? So to inform a community about news that are interesting for that community. Uh, so not gossiping, not, you know, not just surfing the wave of the breaking news, but just focus on specific news that are deemed of interest for the community we are talking to. So, and slow journalism is based on taking your time, focusing on whatever argument, whatever, uh, you know, item you're, or issue you are tackling, and just put all your efforts in explaining it into detail, like go deep, use a language that everybody can understand, and, you know, whatever it takes to publish it, we don't care. We don't go with the fast-paced rhythm of the digital era, we go with the slow rhythm and slow pace that is the pace of the readers. We do use digital tools, but we are not slaves of the digital tools. And I think this is a positive outcome of this whole debate on you know, how journalism has changed. It has changed in the sense that it's gaining again uh, its role as a, you know, a servant of the community in a way. Um, thank you. <clears throat> Since you started mentioning also about um, addressing fake news and the vast information that there is provided in um, um, online outlets, um, what policies and practices are needed to address uh, fake news? Now, the EU signed a code of practice on disinformation with major uh, tech giants. Um, how would you assess this policy approach and what can be done to, to be improved? Well, first of all, I'm probably a bit biased in this, uh, in the sense that clearly as a person who co-founded um, an organization that tackles this issue from the perspective of educational tools, I do believe that uh, uh, education and uh, training is the key, rather than policies and you know, legal frameworks. Uh, why? First of all, because, uh, uh, yeah, you were rightly mentioning the code of practice uh, uh, introduced uh, at the European level and regarding, you know, how platforms are involved in, in dealing with fake news. The first and foremost problem that I see in this is that uh, actually we lack a definition, a shared definition of what is fake news. How do we define fake news or disinformation? I prefer actually the term disinformation because fake news is usually something that is 100% fabricated and with the intent to do harm. Disinformation is a much broader issue, is the kind, all kinds of information, including the one produced by official media, that is somehow twisted, 
either on purpose or you know by you know uh, sort of uh, under the pressure of uh, producing the content you sort of mismatch a title and uh, uh, and the content of an article for example or you use uh, a picture that is clearly misplaced and doesn't really stress the core of the of the of the news it's, and so on and so forth but that said if we introduce a framework we should all agree on what we're tackling. And the truth is, um, it's very difficult to define fake news. Also to define it in legal terms uh, is a sort of double-edged sword in the sense that in a democratic government, for example, in a democratic country, uh, we can all agree, yes, I just, you know, I'm very happy to have, uh, I don't know, the Ministry of Interiors define what is fake news and what is punishable by law. Let's have a shift in 20 years. We do not have a democratic uh, government anymore. We do have, but we do still have this law in, you know, in place. And it's still up to the government and to the institutions to define what is punishable as fake news. I can see it very, very easily go downhill from here. And I mean, I don't, I'm talking about my country. So uh, we do not have, uh, you know, um, an sort of uh, a situation whereby I, I foresee democracy to collapse very soon, but we are all aware that there are other situations, even in Europe, where this risk is not so, you know, far-sighted. You know, uh, so uh, yeah, this is the first problem. The second problem is how do you enforce a code of practice? How do you, you know, do you do you fine the platforms? All these platforms as have, you know, their legal seats elsewhere. They are not in Europe. So what kind of uh, legal framework, again, do we use to make sure that these code of, codes of practices aren't just a sort of um, a bit of a greenwashing experiment applied to fake news, like just as you know, big uh, companies do with, uh, with the climate change stuff. You know, they just pretend and you know, in words, they are very good at it, but in practice, you know, the impact is, I would say, little if not minimal uh, so and for the reasons i mentioned uh, first of all the fact that you know disinformation by its nature it's uh, mostly now a digital phenomenon and uh, digital information doesn't know borders so again how would you face a situation whereby a bit of news is considered illegal stamped as fake news in a country and perfectly legal or maybe controversial, but not punishable, not sanctionable in another country. If we have a European uh, attempt to establish a common ground on fake news, this is again, another problem. I'm thinking about all news regarding, uh, you know, denialism, historical denialism. Think about how different the perception of what is denial, historical denial, negationism in my country or in your country is. We are more sensitive, you know, by reason of our own history towards certain kind of public discourse, which is something that maybe cannot occur in your country. So again, the balance is very tricky. So, um, and that's why basically I think, and I'm not the only one to think so, I know, a lot of friends who work, uh, you know, in similar uh, associations, organizations, uh, and uh, also a lot of friends who were involved in the debate at the European level on the code of practice have their own, you know, issues with, you know, this approach. And the idea is, 
you know, if you don't want to incur in a, in a flat out censorship or in the risk of providing tools for flat out censorship, then you have to take a different angle. And the angle I decided to focus on and I'm working on is this bottom up approach. So enable people to uh, understand what disinformation is, why it is so dangerous, what is the backlash if we are too prone to, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of information structure that is unhinged from, uh, uh, you know, journalistic practice. And in a way, give people the tools to uh, evaluate and gauge what kind of news they are uh, consuming online. It is risky because we know perfectly well that now, uh, you know, with the huge quantities of information out there on the web, uh, there's been also an increase on, you know, conspiracy, conspiracy theories, uh, uh, you know, partisan tales uh, about different, different issues and arguments. Uh, but then again, it's just more visible. People, even back in the days, they did believe this kind of fake news, disinformation. They did believe in conspiracy theories. The difference was that they weren't able to contribute to the debate. We, we didn't see them because they didn't go on Facebook posting contents on, uh, you know, uh, chemtrails or, I don't know, uh, the Zion protocols, whatever. Uh, but they did talk about them in closed circles. They did discuss the things, uh, you know, at a cafe with friends. So it's just more visible now. But I think this is, in any case, a minority. What we can do if we tackle the issue by providing people with a knowledge of what the problem is, uh, is sort of to um, sensitize the majority of people and give them, again, personal individual tools to counteract, or at least to call themselves out of this cycle of creation and distribution of fake news, because this is the real problem. The, uh, the, the way people, even without being aware of it, contribute to the spreading of disinformation, just by clicking, sharing, commenting, posting. If you break the cycle there, then we have a chance to reduce at least the, you know, the impact of the phenomenon by, you know, uh, by a great degree. Uh, aside from policies, education is very um, important um, in, in this area, uh, especially for younger um, generations. As you mentioned, disinformation um, is a very uh, vast pool um, that can do harm than more, than, more harm than uh, good. Um, so how important is media and information literacy for younger uh, generations? And can you point us um, the most successful uh, programs in improving media and information literacy among young people, uh, be that in, uh, in Italy or um, in, in Europe? Sure. Uh, so uh, obviously I can't stress, stress enough the importance of media literacy uh, for uh, that age bracket, but more in general, I would say that with the extreme changes that uh, the media environment has undergone over the last decades, uh, I'd say that the whole population would be in dire need of a, you know, a new media literacy uh, in order to be able to access proactively and not just passively engage in the, in the digital debate. So, um, yeah, as you know, media literacy is a bit of a weird object in many countries, including mine, it hasn't never been properly introduced in the school curriculum 
it is just something additional that becomes uh, uh, well if you're if any of the um, people listening to us is interested in this uh, uh, well there's a nice survey in the media pluralism monitor uh, that each year is released by the center for media pluralism and freedom at the european university institute where a section is dedicated specifically to you know how the media literacy is actually implemented in the european countries so and you would be surprised to see in how uh, how difficult it is to see it really considered as part and parcel of you know what our students uh, are you know tasked with uh, over the especially over the years of compulsory education media literacy is something that comes into play a bit later when all of a sudden we realize hey these guys will have to vote in a short time so maybe it's better if we make sure that they know how to get informed so it's a bit of a rush in high school years uh, you introduce some element of media literacy at a university of course uh, especially if you follow you know the path of uh, you know any any profession really linked to the media uh, but in general i would say that it would be very very important to introduce this uh you know this area uh broadly speaking into the curriculum from a very young age you know some of the work i do with schools includes uh, uh you know introducing basic concepts such as uh, how to distinguish between facts and data and opinions with young kids in preschool or you know in the first years of uh, primary schools in italy so by pointing out that not all the information we get, not all the stories we listen to are composed by verifiable data and fact, uh, but you know, most of the times it's a mixture of something people think and some something that it's real and verifiable, then you already have a sort of a mind frame that is developing. And of course you can add bricks and bricks over the curriculum and go, you know, deeper into what exactly is media what is information what is this information this is actually an approach that has been introduced in finland for example i mean the nordic countries are pretty much advanced in terms of tackling um you know disinformation and uh, media literacy uh, so i mean for me it's not surprising that finland uh, already does something like this and it is one of the few countries where media literacy is part of the curriculum and um, of course you have to develop specific tools uh, so one of the problems is uh, do we have uh, teachers and educators that are you know updated on uh, the most recent uh, you know evolution of how to engage children in this kind of debate especially now with the pandemic uh, there's been a sort of pandemic fatigue among classes and teachers uh, alike. So all the courses I thought, the labs I gave over this year, I had to make a special effort in finding tools, apps, uh, gamifications, uh, you know, uh, role playing that could grasp, uh, you know, whatever content I wanted to put out there, but also catch immediately the kids' attention because they really are overwhelmed with digital content. So they need to be given something else and also to be put in a proactive position. Media literacy is very boring if you just hand over a newspaper and tell them, okay, now I'm, I'm telling you how the newspaper is made. Uh, why should you trust journalists? So they will lash out immediately and telling you, well, but I've seen this thing on a newspaper and this is not true. I mean, 
uh, they gave us, you know, this is gossip or this is partially true, or they had to correct it a few days later and they didn't even care about correcting it. You know, kids do see things. We can't just sell them the old idea. You just stick to the media and everything will be fine. They need to be engaged in a, also in a very open discussion, I think. Um, so for what concerns programs that I would recommend? Well, I, I would definitely recommend a resource. Uh, my organization worked for a couple of years with the International Fact-Checking Network, which is uh, based in the US uh, uh, at a university in, in, uh, in St. Petersburg uh, in Florida. So the International Fact-Checking Network was born out of the need to coordinate uh, the effort of fact-checkers, that is news verifiers throughout the world. And one of the emerging fields uh, fact-checkers uh, have been working on internationally is specifically uh, news uh, literacy, media literacy and uh, media education. So if you go on the website of the International Fact-Checking Network or even better on the International Fact-Checking Day website, website, which is if you type International Fact-Checking Day, it will just pop up immediately. Uh, there you have a specific menu uh, with all a map, an interactive map of all the experiments and tools that have been created all over the world by certified fact-checking associations working on media education. So this is a huge resource. Most of these you know, tools are um, translating in English or they, they at least, uh, there, there's a contact whereby you can reach out to people uh, in countries you don't speak the language of. Uh, they can share their views, they can share their contents, uh, they can share their tools. Most of these organizations are really, you know, volunteer organization or at least uh, they, they don't do it for profit. So, I mean, they're very much available to, to help. Uh, in Italy, we do have, uh, um, I think one of the biggest, uh, uh, most massive programs of media literacy now exist in Europe. It's run by Osservatorio Permanente Giovani Editori, OPGE. Um, it's very traditional in its approach, meaning we, uh, they, their goal is to teach students how to approach traditional media. So how to read a newspaper, how to create a newspaper, how to question what is published in a newspaper. They work uh, um, in a network with uh, the main, the major publishers in Italy, really. They involved all the newspapers, publishers, uh, both at national and local level, because you know, the local news are also very important to, you know, for the kids to engage with. And right now they, they have an outreach of 6 million students each year, which is basically covering the entire high school population in my country. It's a huge endeavor. They've been going at it for the last 20 years. So it started small and it increasingly, increasingly got traction among the teachers. They, they provide uh, training for teachers as well. Uh, they engage with uh, you know, university researchers. Uh, they provide a series of tools and now they are um, I think they, they recently struck a deal with Google and, um, and Apple to have more digital tools available for, for kids. Uh, again, sometimes you have to strike a deal with the devil to, uh, you know, get your, you know, get to your goal. But I think it's a very interesting um, experiment, especially uh, it's a test uh, and it's testament of how important for teachers and students alike this topic is because the, the numbers are staggering. 
and it wouldn't grow as it has grown if there hadn't been a need on the side of the school and educational community. It's very interesting to hear um, that there is this big program going on in Italy to, to tackle media and information literacy, which is, <clears throat> sorry, which is a great plus uh, to have that uh, focus on young people since the, the amount of information they get, they get is huge and also training teachers and professors on uh, delivering um, those kind of lectures and, and information to, to young people is um, it's very interesting and important. And I wish that most, uh, more countries also in the Western Balkans will, will follow on, uh, on those steps because this information, I believe it's, it's a great um, problem, let's say here in, in the countries of the Western Balkans. I will say that, uh, you know, I've, I forgot to mention that these kind of programs have a huge potential for publishers as well. I mean, let's talk business here. Uh, you know, if you are losing grip on younger generations and young readership, then one way out is to get engaged in, in programs, programs like this, uh, so that you get in touch with potential readers earlier. Uh, you make your case, you, you know, you explain why should they uh, trust the information that you publish. So you invest a bit into, I don't know, providing free copies of your, you know, daily or magazine, whatever. Uh, some of these publishers, they also provide, uh, um, you know, trainers. Some of the journalists, some of the biggest names in journalism in Italy uh, have to some extent been involved into this program, like delivering, uh, you know, uh, talks to groups of students or producing online contents to be shared on the program's platform. So there is also, you know, a chance to connect at a deeper level with, uh, with the new readership. So, and last but not least, uh, if you give out copies for free, the numbers in the distribution increase. So it looks nice at the end of the year. So uh, I'm not saying that all these people, all, you know, these companies do it, you know, for free or just out of a good heart. I'm saying there is also potential in this collaboration. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, an, it's not surprising for me that, uh, you know, out of the actors involved, not all of them do it uh, just for, you know, because they think it's a mission. They do it also because they see a positive advantage in terms of their business. And it's fine by me. It's fine by me. Uh, you just find a way to make everybody happy and to give the students, the teachers, some tools that are, you know, uh, good quality uh, and 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 also they are very um, realistic in the way they put them straight into contact uh, with uh, the real world of the media. It's not a program where you have to rely on uh, made-up uh, contents uh, or you know mock. Uh, newspapers you just deal with the real thing and i think that's very important um moving on to our um last uh, aspect um since um you are a founder of the first association fact checkers um you have also been a fellow in uh, various institutes and have had the opportunity to um, cooperate and link with many civil society organizations. Um, I want to hear um, what's your perspective on how uh, civil society can uh, contribute and tackle um, this phenomenon, let's say, and what, it, what is the role of uh, civil society in, in the mentioned uh, topics that we discussed during this podcast? 
I think that civil society has a key role to play in the sense that, first of all, it is from civil society organizations and, and groups that comes a lot of the content that we see we would qualify as citizen journalism. So by promoting the values of uh, uh, quality journalism through their actions, they can actually contribute in sensitizing a wider share of the population, not only the school kids, who are somehow, you know, school kids are the natural target. They have to sit at school and they have to swallow whatever you, you know, you just give them. Civil society goes out there, it's proactive. You need to reach out to uh, brackets of the population that are usually not reachable by these training programs anymore. So it's basically, you know, by producing quality information, by upholding the standards of quality journalism, you are basically training without formally training people. Uh, so I'll give you an example. One of the, uh, well, I've been working over the last uh, few months with uh, um, a street newspaper, you know, the, the kind of street, the newspapers that are produced by a newsroom of uh, uh, people who live on the streets, or at least mm -hmm. who are at the margins of society. And, uh, and then it's uh, printed and it's sold at the corners of the streets or in squares in the major cities. Uh, to uh, you know, finance projects for the uh, you know improvement of the living conditions. So back in the days, these newspapers were mostly you know done in a very unprofessional way. So the contents were you know anything would go because it was mostly about raising money. So the people would give you like fifty cents just because they believed in the cause. But nevertheless, these uh, newspapers are out there for people to read. So why don't we use them uh, to you know, provide quality contents and also to sensitize on specific issues. So for one of these newspapers, which is called Fuori Binario, uh, like, like out of the rails, because many of these people live in the train stations, so like at the side of the rails, um, and it's published in Florence and it's sold in Florence. So I've been contributing since its inception uh, with, a, um, with a column on, you know, disinformation and fake news in a very simple language. So, you know, the whole newsroom is behind this. And the idea is, uh, okay, we have this platform where we can make our voice heard. And one of the issues that we're dealing with as homeless people, for example, is there's a lot of disinformation on who we are, what we do. And uh, so we want to teach people. We want to train them, like adults, elder people, you know, whoever buys this. And, and then again, if you think about, I mean, this is just a specific example, but if you think about the, the young kids involved or the, you know, the young generations, university kids involved in the Friday for Futures movement, um, they do have a massive outreach and they do use the communication as a tool. Uh, the risk is that being, in their case, being activists and advocates, sometimes the kind of information they provide would you know, it risks slipping into, you know, uh, a biased vision or, you know, uh, they, they end up being very emotional and they miss the focus, they miss the, uh, you know, the need of ob objectivity. And this also opens up to a backlash, you know, people attacking them saying like, you're providing biased information. So civil society uh, needs to you know, deal with the issue of how information is spread nowadays, uh, be part of the collective debate uh, and use proactively the tools of fact-checking and uh, quality journalism uh, in order to 
create a new environment. And I think this is also important in uh, another uh, you know, emergency that we're facing right now, that is the increase of hate speech online and uh, the decrease in quality debate online. So civil society needs to focus on uh, uh, recreating an online environment, a digital environment where um, debates and dialogues uh, and conversations follow the rules of mutual respect, uh, uh, you know, objectivity, and, uh, uh, you know, in a sense, also of uh, fairness that we are supposed to use, we should use in our, you know, daily life conversations, but rarely are applied on, on, you know, on online platforms nowadays. So I think there is a huge space for this. Um, also, uh, lifelong learning, and training are something that usually the civil society picks up. It's not something that we can provide uh, or, I mean, yes, associations, organizations in general can work with specific institutions, but I think it's up to the, you know, uh, the civil society to recognize the issue to, and to find ways uh, to deal with it. You know, take, you know, tools and examples from whatever is already there, whatever is provided to, you know, uh, traditional education, for example, but then use it um, you know, in, in your own uh, environment uh, to your, you know, to pursue your own goals. But I think, you know, we can fairly say that there is a shared goal here, which is to clean our heavily polluted public debate platforms from whatever is out there, be it fake news or hate speech. Um, and lastly, I would um, ask you to give very shortly um, a recommendation to our young um, audience, uh, to the young people uh, listening to our podcasts. Um, how can they spot uh, disinformation, and what can they, what can they do uh, themselves to um, widen their uh, their knowledge on on media and uh, information literacy? Well, this is actually my favorite question because it's uh, it's a favorite part of my job, like to go out and engage with uh, kids, with students in labs and, you know, really hands-on work on, you know, how do you spot, how do you recognize fake news? The first thing that you have to do is to acknowledge that virtually each and every single person, each one of us uh, is, uh, uh, you know, at risk of buying into fake news and disinformation. Most of the times you, you have to engage with people who tell you, well, but I, I never, I never believed any, any fake news. No, uh, I would never, uh, I'm very cautious, uh, or I know how internet works. I know how digital tools work. This is not about having a practical knowledge of the tools. This is about knowing ourselves because, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, why do fake news work? It isn't, you know, we cannot simply say, you know, everybody who believes, uh, you know, fake news is stupid or ignorant. This isn't the case. We have highly literate, educated people who fall prey of fake news. Maybe not the one that you, you know, you would found shared by other people. Maybe it's a very subtle one, but they do fall prey of fake news. So why? The reason is that fake news, in order to be effective, I call it, I call them fake news just for the sake of brevity, but, you know, it's, we, we already said it's more complex than that, but let's call them fake news. Um, how do they work? They prey on emotions, right? 
uh, if you have an emotional reaction, be it happiness or anger, disgust or outrage, uh, you know, usually it's bad reactions, but also positive reactions can work. If there's a story that it's literally too good to be true, then maybe it isn't true. Yeah. If you find yourself reacting with your guts more than with your brain, with your heart more than with your, you know, reasoning to something, then maybe you should stop and think. Because that's the entry point for misinformation, disinformation into our lives, into our brains. So I'll give you an example. Um, I'm very sensitive. Every one of us has a soft spot, has a sort of an open side where we are very vulnerable towards whatever kind of information uh, reach out to us. Uh, my soft spot, my open side uh, is the one dealing with racism. Why? Because my kid, my, my, my ex-partner is, uh, is a journalist from Kenya. My kid is half Italian, half Kenyan. So whatever, you know, whatever kind of news comes up in the public debate in Italy regarding episodes of racism, especially towards young kids in my country, I'm hypersensitive towards it. And I myself, and I do work in this field, almost share the fake news a couple of summers back uh, regarding a racist, a racist attack towards two girls in, in a city in Northern Italy, which turned out it was something much more complex than that. It wasn't probably even racism per se. Uh, so it was maybe sort of a, a sub element of racism, but it wasn't the main uh, question there. And what happens if I share that kind of information? Uh, it ha what happens is that I contribute to spreading a twisted reading and interpretation of reality. And more importantly for me, I contribute to a, a polarization of the debate. So I will have people who side with me and say like, yeah, maybe it wasn't really racist, but whatever, the problem is there. And you see already a problem. If it wasn't really racist, maybe we shouldn't talk about this episode. We should focus on other episodes. We sort of blur the, the lines, we, we, we pollute the waters. So. And on the other side, we have people who don't believe there is a racism problem in Italy who say like, you see, you guys are so, you know, mindset, you know, on, on, on this problem that you sort of twist the reality to your own purpose. So we need to be able to acknowledge and recognize our weak spots and just stop and think a bit more whenever we are facing information and news that come towards us and are impacting that side. So first thing, know that you are all at risk of falling prey of disinformation and misinformation, uh, especially because we usually uh, rely on friends and people we know to get bits and parcels of news. We can receive them by WhatsApp, videos on TikTok and Instagram, they are news. It's not only about the newspapers or the, or the websites of newspapers and dailies. Um, a video on TikTok ha has an enormous potential in outreach and uh, it travels very fast. So if there's something that it smells of fake news there, then just please stop, don't share, don't comment, and uh, take your time to think about it. Don't believe anything just because your best friend shared it. With your best friend, you usually also share the same weak spots. So something can buy into their trust and you in turn trust them because, well, they are your best friends. But this is not a guarantee at all, right? So we need to really take our time and go slow. So uh, by the way, what I just mentioned, this idea that we rely on friends and relatives and you know, people we know, 
uh, it's what we call the information bubble. In the time of social networks, uh, we increasingly live in uh, bubbles, self-referential bubbles of people who come from the same experiences, usually share the same beliefs, more or less. So we end up hearing the same kind of discourse over and over again. And there is a huge risk of self-confirmation. If we keep talking with people who believe exactly the same things that we believe, we will never be exposed to different ways of thinking, to different perspectives. And this sort of reinforces uh, you know, the, the power of fake news, because if we share fake news, we all believe in, in our community, then we really strengthen it and we give it you know, a long life to live. So, and then, yeah, practically speaking, you have to learn how to spot what we call the red flags, right? In a content that you see. As I said, emotions play a big role. So whenever you, you bump into a content that triggers your emotions or sort of uh, uh, urges you to share it, like, please read and share. Stop and think, why do they want me to share this? If it's real news, they don't need me to share this. It just, you know, goes on its way, and you know, people will read it and you know, talk about it. It doesn't need me to push it forward. And um, check the pictures. Check if there is a, an attempt to build a story in a way that again appeals to emotion or appeals to, uh, you know, maybe a visual impact uh, more than uh, you know, be as much as they can neutral, which is, you know, the aim should be that. Uh, and, you know, check the URL, check the address of the website, uh, make sure that they are really who they claim to be. Like sometimes uh, uh, we have fake websites that claim to be authoritative newspapers, uh, where, whereby they're just, you know, um, they have a similar name, but they are not quite that thing. Like in Italy, we have, uh, I'll give you an example. You can have uh, the, the newspaper I used to work for, I worked for 10 years, uh, it's called Corriere della Sera. And we, we had a series of fake news websites called Gazzetta della Sera, Corriere della Serra, with two R's instead of one. And you know, if you are in a rush, if you're going to catch the bus, uh, or you know, you're running to school, or you are in a break at work, uh, sometimes you just read the headline, right? You don't even bother to open your news article and if the headline is strong and appealing and you know uh makes you think then you don't even bother to check whether the source is really what it claims to be and you just forward it you just share it straight away or you like it straight away so just please stop and think because we can only break this cycle if we all play our part in it and last but not least uh, make it a point to uh, select a number of authoritative, reliable sources you would refer to, uh, you know, in your everyday quest for information. Just seek out reliable newspapers, magazines. Uh, if there's, uh, uh, you know, there's fact-checking uh, organizations, even in Macedonia, you can rely upon, uh, or in English for international news, you know, sort of uh, make sure you have a routine whenever you seek for quality information, know who your, uh, you know, who your real partners are in this quest for truth. And uh, be wary of whoever claims to have, you know, the final version of everything. One of the important, you know, aspects of journalism is 
journalism is a quest. It's not, uh, we're not preaching. We are trying to understand just as much as you are. So uh, be very wary of whoever claims to have, you know, the one and only truth in its pocket. You know, cross on multiple platforms, uh, cross-check on multiple platforms, sorry, uh, for the different versions of, uh, of a story. And ultimately just apply your critical thinking and uh, know that the power is really in your hands. If you stop the chain of sharing and commenting, then you are really having an impact uh, on whoever is trying to spread fake news. So I think the final lesson that I would like the kids to take home from whenever we have a lab or a meeting is that nobody's telling you whom to trust. What I'm telling you is uh, uh, train yourself, train your brain to evaluate and uh, uh, discriminate between authoritative sources and uh, bogus ones and uh, you know each time basically you have to um, act and not to passively drink and soak in whatever comes to comes your way if something comes your way usually it has an agenda if you're looking proactively for it then you're directing the flow of the information um Gabriela, thank you very much for being part of this um, episode uh, on the Mladirini podcast and for sharing very meaningful insight and information to our young um, audience that is listening uh, for your experience and your very extensive knowledge on, um, on the topic. Um, thank you again for um, accepting this uh, invitation and um, I wish you the best of luck <laughs> on your well, career you. path. Thank you so much, Ardita. It was uh, really a pleasant chat, and I hope I, you know, I contributed a bit to, uh, you know, at least to spearhead a bit this uh, impossible battle for uh, quality information that seems to be taking place uh, throughout Europe and throughout the world, really. So I was very happy to be here. Thank you for having me here, and uh, yeah. Let's hope we will meet in real life soon and not through a podcast <laughs> in Macedonia or elsewhere. Definitely. Thank you again. And to our uh, listeners of the podcast, I would say stay tuned because we will have uh, much more um, podcasts and information that will be uh, interesting for you to hear. Thank you.